This morning as I was heading out of our neighborhood in the colony, to heading just south here to Carrollton, I was um, captured by some signs and some flags that were out just outside of the exit of, of where we live. And uh, on the signs it said revival this morning. And there was a, a sweet, great uh, church plant uh, in our little community that uh, God has started. And a dear sweet pastor by the name of, of Bruce White who um, think a lot of, and uh, I know some in here know Bruce, but a uh, real sweet man. But they, they had the signs up this morning, and they were having a little gathering outside, and, and uh, it was a revival that they're, they're having. And many of us know when we hear the word revival, there's many things that, that come to our mind. We think of a, a gathering, uh, a worship gathering. Some of us, maybe part of our story involves attending what we would call a revival service, and and that's where maybe we met Jesus and came to faith. That's part of my story as a young kid. But when we think about that word revival this morning, um, it, it, it's not just something that happens in a service. It's not just a, a, a gathering with music and, and preaching, even though that could be called a revival, and that would be our longing for that service that God would revive hearts when we think about the word revival, though, it, it, it literally means when the life of somebody that was once dead in sin, because we are, the Bible says, all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. Uh, the wages of sin is death. Um, so welcome to the Ridge this morning. Um, that's the condition of man. The Bible says no man is, is good. And so that's where we find ourselves. And so what happens when one is revived, they're taken from death to life. That's what means, revive means. We go from being dead in our sin, now alive in Christ Jesus, because the free gift of God in Christ Jesus is eternal life. And so life is found in Christ. And so this once dead person is now made alive. That's what revival is. And what happens as a result is change happens. Their life is revived. Their life is made new to where now they begin to live truly. And they begin to walk with God. They, they begin to obey the commands of God. They begin to, to turn and away from things they used to live for, from sin and, and practices. Maybe they were, were involved in habits they were involved in. Those things are removed. They're gone. And now they seek to live for the Lord. That's what it means to be revived. And that's what's happened in Ephesus. As we pick up this episode this morning that we've just read about, Lucy, thanks for reading. And when we read that, we hear this episode, but what's the context? What's going on? Well, a revival has just happened in Ephesus. Ephesus is a dark city. It's a big city with, with many people that are they're trapped, lost, dead in sin. But I want you to look this morning as our text. Look at verse 21 in chapter 19. It says this, now after these things were finished. And so it makes us ask, well, okay, what's been finished? What are these things? Well, what happened in verse 17 and 18 is people came to know Christ as their Savior. They came confessing their sin. And not only that, they came and they brought the things that they were wrapped up in. And specifically in Ephesus, a lot of people were wrapped up um, in different religions, but also in magic. And many people would make business 
of magic and the things to do with that. And so they brought these magic books that were very wealthy or cost a lot, and they brought them and they burned them. And see, when one is revived by the Holy Spirit and they come to know Christ, their life is so changed, they don't want to have anything to do with evil, darkness, and sin. They want to start living a life completely separated from those things, and that's what happened in Ephesus. They bring these books, and we're told that um, the amount of, of money that these books cost that, that was burned in the fire would probably be the equivalent of about $10, $12 million today. And, and so they were serious about the change that Christ had begun in their hearts. And so this city um, is changing. And so as we read it today, that's what's happening. This city that was so deep in the worship of goddess Artemis or goddess Diana, now change is happening in the lives of people. And look what happens in verse 22. I want us to kind of give a, give a, a more context here. Here's Paul, because Paul had been in the city. God had been working through his ministry. The power of God is present. And then Paul says this in verse 21. He purposed in the spirit to go to Jerusalem after he had passed through. Macedonia and Achaia, and saying this, after I've been there, I must also see Rome. And having sent into Macedonia two of those who ministered to him, Timothy and Erastus, he himself stayed in Asia for a while. Now, I read that because here's the deal. The writing of Acts tells us something that God is doing, and he's still doing today. In Acts 1.8, it says that Jesus has called people to be his witnesses, those who know him. People like Sandy this morning that know him. People like Isabel that baptized this morning. People in here that know Jesus as your Lord and Savior. We're to be witnesses in our hometown, in our neighborhoods, but even to the uttermost parts of the world. And what Luke is telling us here is that's happening right here in the first century. God is doing that through the likes of Paul and, and Timothy and others. And God is sending them even to the uttermost parts of the world. What's the uttermost parts of the world in the first century? It's Rome. And so Paul has his eyes, led by the Spirit, fixed on Rome. But before he goes to Rome, he's going to stay right where he's at for a little bit, in Ephesus, where God has begun a revival in the hearts of people, and he's begun to stir the city. And what I want us to see this morning is this. The problem of the heart is something that we all, when we hear the word we know about, we don't use the word a lot. But it's the problem of the heart, the problem of the soul this morning is soul idolatry. And it's going to be exposed in this city. It was the problem of those who brought their magic books, but they were revived and they come to know Christ now. But it continues to be the problem in the culture in Ephesus, just as it is in our day. And I want us to see today, what is that? What is idolatry of the soul when you really get down to the heart of the matter? And I want us to see this morning the effects of it. And then lastly, the, the only Savior from soul idolatry. The only Savior. The only rescuer. And so look at this this morning in verse 23 as this um, episode begins. It says this, about that time there occurred no small disturbance. What does that mean? It's a great disturbance, right? Concerning the way. What is the way? It's Christianity. That's what it was called back then. It was the way. Isn't that, isn't that interesting? And that's who Jesus says he is. I am the way, the truth, the life. 
And so the way, that's what they called it back then. It's Christianity. No small disturbance occurred concerning the way. For a man named Demetrius, a silversmith, who made silver shrines of Artemis, was bringing no little business. That means a lot of business to the craftsmen. These he gathered together with the workmen of similar trades and said to them, Men, you know that our prosperity, our financial increase, depends upon this business of making shrines and statues of Artemis. You see and hear that only in Ephesus, but in almost all of Asia, this Paul has persuaded and turned away a considerable number of people, saying that gods made with hands are no gods at all. Not only is there a danger that this trade of ours would fall in disrepute on bad times and be disrespectful, but also that the temple of the great goddess Artemis be regarded as worthless, and that she whom all of Asia and the world worship will even be dethroned from her magnificence. So many in Ephesus worship the goddess Artemis or Diana. It was believed by these worshipers of Artemis that a meteorite fell from heaven and landed there. And it was in the shape of a woman. And therein became the center of their worship. We get a clue of that. If you look down at verse 35, the city clerk, we're going to read about it in a moment, says, men of Ephesus, what man is there after all who does not know that the city of the Ephesians is the guardian of the temple of the great Artemis of the image which fell down from heaven? heaven. If you think of many religions in the world that come from such stories, we'd call them even fables, maybe would cause us to laugh, but many people get wrapped up in it. And so a big business was begun as a result of the worship of Artemis with the making of shrines and statues and figurines. You want one for your home. You want one maybe for your carriage to put on the dashboard. You'd have a shrine maybe out in your yard to go with your landscape. I mean, you name it. It was a big business. In fact, it was so extremely important to the economy in Ephesus that Demetrius stands up on this day, who is kind of the, the head honcho of the city and the representative of these economy related to making of silver shrines and he brings the workmen together because sales have greatly decreased. But why? What's the cause of this decreased financial increase when it came to the shrines? Well, the idols were confronted with what? The gospel. The idols of the day were confronted with the gospel. And when you confront idols, the culture and economy are truly affected greatly. And how were they affected? How were they confronted? Well, if you remember, Paul went to Ephesus teaching. And he taught in the synagogue for three months. And then he left the synagogue focus. And then he went to teach in the lecture hall of Tyrannus in the city, which was like an auditorium. And he would every day from about 11 a.m. to 4 p.m., he would teach the gospel. He would make disciples. For two years, he did that. And many were saved. Many discipled in the way of Christ and turned away from idolatry and their evil practices, as we've seen already this morning. And so Paul came to Ephesus and he confronted the idols of the culture there. But what did Paul say? What would his message about the idols there 
in Ephesus. We don't have a specific sermon today that we can look at as we normally do in Acts, but we do have something that is said by Demetrius that tells us about what Paul taught. Look at verse 26. Demetrius says, you see and you hear that not only in Ephesus, but in almost all of Asia, this Paul has persuaded and turned away a considerable number of people, saying that gods made with hands are no gods at all. When Paul would go into a city, he would expose the idols, just like he did in Athens and other places. He would make them known, and he would call them for what they really are. And just as Ephesus, he said that they are no gods, these gods made with human hands. And we have gods in our culture as well. You might say, well, when I walk through Carrollton or when I drive through the colony or Fire Mountain, Louisville, Plano, wherever you're at, you're like, I, I don't see idols. And maybe like, not in Ephesus, people bowing down to little G-gods like Artemis. But in our city, we definitely have idolatry. We have soul idolatry. That's what David Clarkson, a great Puritan, called it. The Old Testament will call it spiritual adultery or the serving of idols or the sacrificing to idols, but it deals with the heart. It's not just a, a physical act, although the little gods that we have in our world definitely involve physical action, time, obviously money that we give to them. But what is an idol? If we were to say, what is an idol? And we talked about this a few weeks ago, but I think it's good to come back there a little bit. But what is an idol? An idol or another god, a little g god, in our life is literally the act of looking to anything else to give you what only God can ultimately give you. So let's think about that for a second. Think about what God gives us. He gives us purpose. He gives us security. He gives us meaning. He gives us identity. He gives us peace. He gives us ultimately salvation. He gives us life. But idolatry is when we look to something else or someone else to do that, ultimately. And so idolatry is anything in our life that is so central that if we lose it, we won't believe that we have meaning in life anymore. I got to tell you, I, I had a, a true idol in my life for a few years. I grew up here in Carrollton, um, was blessed with a talent to, to, to play soccer and, and love the sport, love the sport, played high school, played club, and got to the kind of the, what would you call that, the, the, the peak of, of what I longed for, loved, and wanted was finally got to go to college and, and play. And I remember right before I went to school to start playing, I started really being discipled in the way of Christ. And, and God started opening my eyes to the reality that, that I had turned this sport into definitely an idol. Definitely. And I remember my freshman and, and then sophomore year in college, God started just convicting me and a lot of other things in my, in my heart and life. And started realizing I had made soccer, the sport, truly a God, where identity and meaning and, and really, really came down for me is I felt like if I didn't do this anymore, what meaning would I have? What purpose would I have? I mean, that's really what it came down to. And, and God quickly changed that to say, hey, wait, hold on a second. 
your meaning and your identity is not wrapped up in this. It should not be wrapped up in this. But too often, how many things in life do we do that with, whether it's physical beauty? For some of us, maybe it is a sports. I mean, some of us, when, it, when the, the Cowboys are playing, I mean, it's go time. I mean, it is go time. You don't have a family member on the team. I mean, you don't have any buy-in. You're not part owner. Somebody, I think somebody owns the whole team, right? I mean, you, you don't, I know they do, but um, you, but, but you, we act like a lot of times that, that we're, do we got something going on here? Like we have this intimate relationship. And we do that, we can do that not just with the Cowboys, but with anything. And we, we can make anything or every, anything we want to be a God. And we all can be guilty of that. It's anything in life that we want to get this idea that I'm going to have meaning because of this. It's social standing. It's a career. The amount of wealth we have. This is really going to make me something if I do this or have this. And that's dangerous. We take finite things, good things, and make them ultimate things. We worship created things instead of the creator. And this is what was happening in Ephesus, right? Look at verse 27, what we just read. Not only is there danger that this trade of ours fall in dis- disrepute, but also that the temple of the great goddess Artemis be regarded as worthless. And that she whom all of Asia and the world worship will even be dethroned from her magnificence. So first of all, what you see here, Artemis was what they worshipped. They worshipped a false god, obviously. They had pride in being the guardian of the temple of the great Artemis. And they didn't want that pride to go away. Does that sound like anything? American pride, anyone? Going once, going twice, right? I mean, we can get wrapped up in it. I mean, this time of year, man, it just gets heightened, right? We can get wrapped up in it. They didn't want the temple, the place of worship, to be defamed. Ultimately, they didn't want the worship of Artemis to stop because why? What was the ultimate motivation? Because it would impact them economically. You see, when you start messing with people's idols and gods, you start messing with their wallet. And when you start messing with people's wallets, what happens? I mean, no ton in cheek here, but knives come out, right? Fists come up. You mess with my dollar, there's going to be a fight. And that's how people think. That's where people go. That's what happened here. Why? 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 Because idolatry, what happens? Idolatry is not just this physical thing we do. I mean, that's the consequences. That's what happens eventually. But, but it's because it's here. Because it's here. Because you're messing with something that's reigning in my life. And you're messing with that. You start dethroning things that I'm so attached to, I'm going to take you out. And that's eventually what it gets to. You're going to make me mad. Martin Luther learned in his life that everything deals with this. He said in the Christian life, if you think about the Christian life and and, and sin that we struggle with, it all comes down to the issue of idolatry. You think about the Ten Commandments. Many of us know them, Exodus 20. We have the list of Ten Commandments there, but, but Luther says this, 
really what happens when we break two through 10, let's take lying for example, when we break the command not to, to bear false witness, not to lie, we're breaking the first commandment. Every sin we make, we're breaking the first commandment. What's the first commandment? Not to put any other gods before the one true God. And so all of us, when we sin, we break that. We break that. Think about lying. Lying is saving face, right? That's what it is. And when somebody lies, when we lie, what are we doing? We, we care more about the opinion that people have about us and the image that we're portraying and putting up front than we do about Jesus. We care more about self-worth and self-righteousness than we do about God. That's what happens. That's, that's what Luther had in mind. And so what's the point? We all struggle with idolatry on some degree, some level. What are some examples of this? The first, I mean, think about our society. Let's do that. Let's do what Paul might do. If Paul came to Carrollton, Paul came to, to North Dallas, what would he do? He would confront the idols. And so where, was it, where would he begin? I think just as he did in Ephesus with Artemis. And who's Artemis here? It's money. You might say, well, how money? Well, think about this. The goddess Artemis was the goddess of hunt, the goddess of moon, and the goddess of fertility. The goddess of fertility in the sense of if you wanted um, a good crop, you would make a sacrifice to the goddess of Artemis. And she would make your your crops grow. And then as a result, as harvest time comes, you would take the harvest and, and you would have plenty and you would sell them. And you would make tons of money as a result. You had financial prosperity. And so think about it. You, you, you want to like make a lot of money in Ephesus, so what do you do? You make sacrifices to Artemis. Now you think about this. Making money and financial gain is not wrong, right? But when it becomes ultimate, as it did here in Ephesus with many, that's when it becomes wrong. So wrong that if you think about this time, what they would do, that the sacrifices that they would bring to Artemis, they would bring their children. Yes, Bring their children, make sacrifices, have children killed, children sacrificed. We've heard it before. It still happens in places today, like it did back in, in Ephesus. But how different is that from our day? You might say, well, nobody, I don't know too many people today that are bringing a child to be killed and a sacrifice of a God. But think about this. How many people are so driven by their work and so driven by a prophet? that we sacrifice our children. How do we do that with, with time? With how much we put into our job? It happens. It happens. It's the same thing. It's the same thing. It's just kind of dressed up different today. Another God in our day, if Paul came, he would, he would probably confront the God of, of romantic love. Let's just name it that. You might say, well, what do you mean? Well, God created love to be shared and specifically in the bounds of marriage between a man and a woman. So, so nothing wrong with romantic love within those bounds that God created. You betcha. We see that. But when we step outside of his plan for that love to be enjoyed and shared, we commit adultery. And so what does that look like? For an example, and, and some of you students in here this morning and, and others that maybe were not married this morning, I, I want you to think about this. And maybe we've been here before and past and stuff. It's where we have this relationship where we're so in love with this person that 
They give us meaning. They give us ultimate meaning. That, that they make us have this certain feeling and, and that I'm nothing without them. If, if I don't have them in my life, I'm nothing. And we get so wrapped up in that, that that what happens as a result is boundaries? What boundaries? Right? I mean, I feel that way so much that I'll do anything. Do anything. This can happen in marriage, too. And, and here's how it happens in marriage is we can be guilty of this in the sense that we look to our spouse for what only God can ultimately give us. And when we don't get what we're looking for from our spouse, we're let down by them. But we're looking for, for them to give us what only God can give us. And we have to be so careful of that. This is why many, I think today, even in the Christian church, face divorce and end up there because they've turned this romantic love and the other person into a God when that God doesn't give us what we want or it loses its impact, we leave it for another idol. Something or someone that can give us what we want. So we have to be careful. We have to be on guard. Another idol I think Paul would confront in our day is children. You might be saying, hold the boat. And this happens when parents, when we do this, we, we look to our children to make us happy. We look for love from them. We look to their success and their achievements. And here's my thing. Is it wrong that your children are happy? No. I mean, you want your children to be happy. You want your children to love you. You want your children to be successful. And you want them to make great achievements. Sure you do. But when those things become the ultimate, you've made your kids an idol. And so what eventually happens is the child, as a result, and I think that's why this is so, happens so many with 20s today, 20-year-olds, is they stay home. <laughs> they never take flight. It's because it's been made all about them. They become the center. And then when they get out in the real world and they realize, whoa, I'm not the center and everything's not handed to me and I'm not weighted on hand and foot and I'm not given a participation trophy and all this kind of, I mean, just, a, just saying. I mean, I like, I like, did I say that? I mean, I like, I like that, but you know what I mean? I mean you know what I mean? Wow, that's going to, I'm cool with, with those to a point. <laughs> to a point. To a point. Thanks for showing up, right? Um, but you know what I mean. I mean, it, they never take flight. Or they want to get as far as they can from you. Those two things happen. Now, those are consequences that happen. Not, not always because of this, but I think we see that today. And so we've got to be, be careful. What are we making idols of? Things that are good, very good. But are we making them the ultimate? Now look what happens because this is very interesting. I want to go quick on this. Look at verse 28 and 34, okay? And everybody's going home with a ribbon today, all right? Here we go. So when they, because 
<laughs> Never mind. Okay, when they heard this, <laughs> they were filled with rage. But why are they mad? The economy is going down. We're not getting the profit that we used to. And so they begin crying out, saying, Great is Artemis of the Ephesians. The city was filled with confusion. They rushed with one accord into the theater, dragging along Gaius, Aristarchus, Paul's traveling companions from Macedonia. And when Paul wanted to go into the assembly, the theater, the disciples would not let him. And also some of the Asiarchs, who were friends of his, of Paul's, sent to him and repeatedly urged him not to venture into the theater. So then... Some were shouting one thing and one another, for the majority did not know for what reason they had come together even. Some of the crowd concluded it was Alexander, and since the Jews had put him forward, and having motioned with his hand, Alexander was intending to make a defense to the assembly. But when they recognized that he was a Jew, a single outcry rose from them all, and they shouted, check this out, for two hours. Wow. Great is Artemis of the Ephesians. So what do we see here? Rage, anger, filled the hearts of the workmen. But what did Paul come teaching? Even though gods are nothing. That's what he came and taught. Gods made with human hands are nothing. What do we learn right here? They are nothing, but they're powerful. They're nothing, but they're powerful. You see, the principalities and the powers of evil and darkness, they work through idols to distract us from the one true God. It's the weapons they have. It's the weapons the enemy has. And so they're nothing, but they're powerful. Think about this for a second. You have this city of workmen, and they're stirred up by what's happening. The effect of... of, Paul and, and the Christians now living differently. They're not giving into materialism anymore. They're not watching the shows they, they should, uh, shouldn't be watching anymore. They've start reading, stopped reading the, the articles in those magazines that they're, they're, they're not supposed to be reading. They've stopped doing that. They've stopped uh, uh, revolving their life around things that don't honor the Lord. That's all stopped. And now it's impacted the economy. And so now you have this city filled with people. Why are people there? Well, it's the month of celebrating this festival to Artemis. And so you have people there for that. You have athletic games going on, kind of like the Olympic kind of feel. And so this city is a buzz. And they go into this theater with about, uh, has seating for like 25,000 people. And they're all yelling, great is Artemis. And some don't even know why they're yelling that. They're just caught up in the cultural flow. Hey, everybody else is doing it. Let's just kind of get on this bandwagon. Part of it is because some of these guys are drunk, right? This is Mardi Gras on Bourbon Street. This is Las Vegas, the Strip. That's what you have going on here. And they're yelling out, great is Artemis. Here's the deal. You, they grab Gaius. They grab Aristarchus, friends of Paul. They bring them in. These are Christians. They know they're part of the way. They're part of Christianity. And here's the deal. You threaten an idol. We mentioned this earlier. You threaten an idol and it will fuel rage and anger and it will eventually get you killed. Because you start messing with somebody's wallet. And that's what happened here. Paul tried to get in, no doubt, to speak about Jesus 
to take the opportunity, but his friends and the city leadership there in Ephesus would not allow him looking out for him. Some of the crowd thought they were to hear from this unbelieving Jewish man named Alexander who the Jews put up, no doubt, to say, hey, listen, this is because of Paul. This is because of the Christians. No doubt that's what he was going to get up and say. But the Ephesians didn't let him get up because they put Judaism and Christianity together. Remember, they grouped those things together even though they weren't. And so you have this scene. And look what happens in verse 35. After quieting the crowd, 35, the city clerk comes in and says, Men of Ephesus, what man is there after all who does not know that the city of the Ephesians is the guardian of the temple of the great Artemis, the image that fell from heaven? So since then, these are undeniable facts. You ought to keep calm and do nothing rash. So to sum up the last part here, he calms down the crowd. He says, hey, Demetrius, if he has an issue that needs to be brought up in the courts, let him, let him come and do that. And then the assembly disperses. And so what do we see here? God sovereignly cares for the Christians on this day in this specific way. Gaius and Aristocurse and, and Paul and the other believers, there's, there's relief from what's going on in here. It won't go any farther on this day. But I want you to think about, in, in this era, what will happen is, is Peter and James and Paul and other Christians will eventually be martyred in scenes like this, on days like this, because of the stand they took. Even the likes of a Polycarp. You know the story of Polycarp? He took a stand in the first and into the, in the first century there. In Smyrna, he was a, as a bishop. And he was brought into a stadium just like this by, by guards. And he was put before a tribunal and, and the crowd. And they asked him in front of the whole crowd, they said, we want you to deny Christ. Because he stood for the same things Paul and, and all these people in Ephesus that were now believing in Christ stood for. His heart has been revived ever since he was a young kid. But I love this about Polycarp. Polycarp stood up in the middle of that crowd that day, 86 years old. And they threatened him with beasts and wild animals, and he stood there. And they eventually put a fire and put him right in the middle of where they were going to burn it. And they started to burn it. I love what he said as, as they said, hey, do you deny Christ? We'll give you one more chance. And he said this, 86 years I have served him, and he never once wronged me. How can I blaspheme my king who saved me? I was told that day by many that were there that the fire left him unburned. And so soldiers came and plunged a sword into his side. And so much blood poured out of Polycarp that day that it had extinguished the fire. It was a scene. But I share that because God sovereignly takes care of him here in this way. But later it will end in death for many. And the point is this, is that when you threaten idols and when you threaten other little g-gods, persecution comes. And so it leads to the last point as we close, and I want you to think about this, is what's our only savior and rescue from idols and other little g-gods in our day? It's Jesus. That everything in our life is centered around Jesus. Our money is centered around Jesus. Our marriage, our relationships are centered around Jesus. Our children are centered around Jesus. Everything in life, everything we have, everything is centered around the gospel. 
It must be. Because that's what Jesus came to do. He came to defeat the idols and the gods of this world that we are so easily given to. Listen to what Colossians 2.15 says. When Jesus had disarmed the rulers and or authorities, he made a public display of them, having triumphed over them through him. Jesus dies on the cross, he raises again, and he defeats the idols and the gods of this world, leaving them powerless, disarmed. They don't mean anything. Just as Paul says, they're nothing. They're nothing. So that you and I could overcome them. And that's what the gospel does. The gospel prevails. So who can save us from the gods and the idols that we make up in our world? From the destruction and ruin of them, he alone can do that. He alone can. And I want you to think about this. This small group of Christians this day, I don't know what the percentage of was in Ephesus. But think about this. In our day here in America, it is said that about 30% of Americans are born-again believers. About 30% are born-again believers. Here's the question. If 30% of the society that are Christians, if, if we started really taking this serious and said, okay, we're going to throw our idols away, we're going to go burn up these magic books, all these things, materialism, you name it, all these things that we make little g-gods, if we got serious about it, what would happen in our culture? What would happen in our economy? What would happen? Because think about this. These guys in Ephesus, there probably wasn't a third of the city. Probably not. But yet, look the impact they made in their culture because they stopped. They stopped serving the idols. They stopped serving the God of their land. And they started serving the one true God. They gave their life to Christ. And so what does it mean for us, real simply, is we've got to turn to Christ. We've got to give up the idols in our life, confess our sin, and ask God's continual help to turn from the idols, to guard our hearts in Christ Jesus from soul idolatry, to listen to God's word and to literally do what he says. Because guess what? Idols never deliver. Their end is room. Their end is destruction. And guess what? Jesus delivers all the time. And he gives life. And so just as Joshua stood in his day, and he told the Israelites, he says, if it is disagreeable in your sight to serve the Lord, choose then for yourselves today whom you will serve, whether the gods which your fathers served, which were beyond the rivers, or the gods of the Amorites in whose land you're living. But I love what Joshua said. He says, as for me, and he says, for my house, we're going to serve the Lord. I pray today, that's our heart. Not just right here, not just right now. But I pray when we walk out that door, that's our heart. We're going to serve the Lord. Let me pray for you.